Hey, everybody, just dropping this real quickly at the beginning of the show uh, as an afterthought, actually. If you are a Patreon supporter and you listen to us on our Patreon app or at the Patreon page, this whole episode will be available there as one long show. This particular show, because of the length of it, was broken up into two parts and for bandwidth issues, etc. Um, we're going to have one part of it this week and the rest of it next week. But if you are a Patreon listener and you support the show, I'm going to give you guys the entire episode plus about 15 more minutes of extra bonus stuff that he talked about after we were done interviewing with a few more revelations and things like that. So you got a choice. You can listen to it here and listen to it in its two parts and wait for it, or you can go over to the Patreon page and you can download it off of there. Thanks. I'm with the show. Hey, blind boy, come over here. What's your name, boys? My name Willie Brown, sir. What are you doing on these crossroads alone, Willie Brown? Robert Johnson told me I can make a deal here. A deal? <laughs> With who? Robert said man called Legba. You him? No, no, no. I'm his assistant. Now, let me see here. You got to tell me what's on your mind, Willie Brown. I got two dollars. <laughs> Well, your green don't buy nothing down where leg but come from, boy. Now, you want to play like Robert Johnson? You want to play like Petey Wheatstraw? Well, say goodnight to your soul, son. Go on, blind boy. Sign. before 12 every Saturday night and you learn them blues hey everybody what's up welcome back to another episode of Project Archivist with a very throat shot Lobo <laughs> yep <laughs> you sound you sound fantastic you don't you don't have that you have that grizzled rock star voice yeah, well I guess it's fitting isn't it you've been uh, <clears throat> You've been uh, with your kids all day at a, at a dance recital. Is that what it was? Or a competition. Yeah, it's competition, correct. So your voice is absolutely <laughs> shot. Um, this episode, I have been looking forward to recording this episode probably since before we started the show. This is probably the last name on the bucket list. And tonight we're interviewing our Gary Patterson about rock and rolls, myths, legends, uh, the darker side. Um the Paul McCartney death hoax. I believe he is literally the one that wrote the book on that with Paul. The walrus was Paul. Take a walk on the dark side. Rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. I have probably purchased this book. <laughs> How many times? <clears throat> I know at least four, possibly five, where I have purchased this book, read it, and gave it to somebody else. I gave a copy to TJ at the 13 Skulls one year for either his birthday or for Christmas. <laughs> I, I damn near almost gave it away this week to a gentleman that I work with because he was really interested. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not letting it go this time. I told Mr. Patterson this when I sent him a, a message on, on Facebook. I'm like, I'm like, I have purchased your book so many times because <laughs> it's just such a great book. I, I don't know how long this show is going to be, which kind of sucks because you're shot. And I, it's, it's hard for me because I've been waiting so long to talk to this person. I've got so many questions to ask him. It's no secret that I am a huge fan 
of the Robert Johnson myth of selling your soul to the devil, you know, for for great stardom and success, and then you know, you, you the tragedy happens. So much so that I did a show a long time ago for Anomalous based on this, and I think even me and you also did a, a show about the legend of the crossroads, what the significance of the crossroads is, way way mm-hmm. back in the day. But this is it. This is, I think this is the last person that was on our bucket list, or at least on my bucket list, to get on this show when we started recording this podcast. I think the only person left now is, is Ben Grundy, and I seriously doubt that Benjamin Grundy is ever going to come on our show. <laughs> I want to talk to Robert Stack. Really? Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's never going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Unless we pull out the Ouija board. So um, yeah. I remember uh, talking to John Tenney. Um, that was cool. And he was talking to me about how he was a uh, he was a consultant on that show, and he's like, "Yeah, I've got tons of stories of Robert Stack being drunk on set." So, and I, I always wanted to follow him up on that with some stories, but I've never been able to get a hold of him to get him back on the show to do it. So, um, I guess everybody seemed to. I've gotten a lot of good feedback on our little last Ramblecast we did about biblical jackass. Um, mm. <laughs> which, you know, we'll do it again. It was fun. It was cool just to do a ramble cast again. But I, I guess a lot of people really enjoyed the whole, uh, the whole uh, biblical jackass portion of it, and with the uh, the whole uh, Jesus thing, which is the little cracker that they give you during communion. But oh, um, Jesus, <laughs> ding. <laughs> So anyways, um, yeah, he's waiting for us. We're going to give him a call. We're going to jump into this thing and get it going. However, this week we have to do the show on phone. He's he's given me a Skype information. He's also given me his phone number, but he suggests we do it by phone because I guess his internet connection isn't so great. I can't stand doing shows with phone, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So again, if the audio quality is a little rough on here, forgive us, but I think it'll be a great interview. And So um, we will see you, you guys. You can tell again. Rogan's a little excited. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am so stoked. I am so 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 happy to be doing this interview i it is this has been such a long show in the waiting to come and happen and be able to do this i am so and so incredibly pumped about it it could be some of the caffeine as well but anyways maybe uh we will see you guys at the other side talk to you then bye So with us tonight, we've got R. Gary Patterson, author of the book Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses, and the other one that is one of my favorites, The Walrus Was Paul, I believe that's what it was, the Paul McCartney death hoax. You also wrote a book that I had for a short time, and then I, (laughs) we're going to get into this, I let somebody borrow it, and that was uh, the uh, Hellhounds on My Trail, the story is Robert Johnson. And I let somebody borrow it, and of course I never saw it again, and last time I checked, that book was going for a few hundred dollars or something along those lines. Um, well, that's why you never saw it again when you let somebody <laughs> borrow it. I have purchased this book, uh, the, Take a Walk in the Dark Side, probably four or five times that I can remember. I'll buy it. I'll read it. <laughs> I'll let somebody borrow it, and I'll never see it again. I'll buy it again, mm. and then I'll get into a conversation. I'm like, here, borrow this book. This time, actually this week, I damn near gave it to a guy that I work with. There's an older gentleman that I work with, and he was really fascinated <laughs> by it. And the temptation was very strong to say, you know what? Take this book and borrow it, and I'll get it back from you later. But this time, I said, no way. I'm not letting it up anymore. I'm not giving rid of it. I have probably... <laughs> gone through as many copies of this book as Spinal Tap has gone through drummers. 
So, wow. <laughs> well, Simon and Schuster and I both appreciate the royalties. That's great. This time around, I got two copies of it because I bought a copy for me and I bought a copy for Lobo here. So, you know, that's another two copies of it that you have sold. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, you've I been on. Appreciate a- that. You've been on my bucket list to get on this show since for at least six years. So we've been doing this for six years now. And you, when we first started the show, I made a list of people that I always wanted to speak with, and you were one of them. And I am well, thank you. So incredibly geeked and pumped to be able to talk to you. Um, the first thing that we have to discuss, and I, usually we try to take our guests in different directions and not give you the same interview you've had over and over again, but. I, I have to ask you about the whole Robert Johnson, um, the, the legend behind Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil and so forth. Um, I, a long time ago on another podcast that I did, I actually did an episode based on Robert Johnson is using your book, and I did give you credit in the episode, as the basis for you know how I put that show together. So I absolutely must talk to you about the whole Robert Johnson you know legend of selling your soul to the devil, because that is a, a legend that it transcends. It's one of those legends that just, it goes back farther than that it's the great faustian story of you know it's it's carried on through like voodoo with uh with i believe it's legba you know meeting meeting legba at the crossroads and things like that very good very good um where do we start how how do we how do we start off with the whole robert johnson story well let's start with the legend and uh and then from the legend we'll move forward but before we do anything uh let me just say that when i was in elementary school i always enjoyed the devil and daniel webster I remember reading that. And then, you know, about the guy who sold his soul to the devil and has to go to court and hell and all that. And then I remember reading, uh, I guess the second one I had was Young Goodman Brown and uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne about him meeting the devil at a crossroads. And then the tragical history of Dr. Faustus and then later uh, Faust by Goethe. And every time I read it was the idea, the classical part, of a man selling a soul to the devil for all these powers, and but it always ends tragically, except for Faust. So I thought, well, you know what would be cool in a classroom is to say, let's talk about one in American legend that many people say actually happened. And when I got to Robert Johnson, now, first of all, Johnson was a major influence for Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Keith Richards. And I really believe that if you take a look at Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters, the thing that really took them into Johnson was the legend, the story. Because, I mean, in rock and roll, a lot of times what we have, we have a legend. If you remember Marilyn Manson when he first appeared, you know, people were going to see if he actually threw puppies into the audience and uh, (laughs) Alice Cooper. So Mm -hmm. the whole idea that goes with show business, it goes with rock and roll. So the story goes that Robert Johnson was a poor sharecropper's son who lived in Clarksdale, Mississippi, or right outside it. And he was a terrible musician. And he tried to play the harmonica, and he was terribly bad. And he knew a few chords on the guitar. And when you're playing in Mississippi Delta, and you have people like uh, Sun House and uh, Sonny Boy Williams, and you have this whole list of these great blues players. And the story goes that Johnson would try to sit in with the other musicians, and they would get up and dodge him. Well, he went to look for his father, which meant going to Memphis. And he was gone for a number of weeks. But when he came back, he was an incredible guitarist. And Sun House turned to the other bluesmen because they remember how bad he was. 
And in a few short weeks, here he is incredible, doing things that none of them could do. And Sunhouse turned to the others and said, you know, he sold his soul to play like that. Well, that was started. That was the, the stick, I guess you would say, with Robert Johnson. And when he would play in roadhouses in Mississippi, he would bend over his instrument, his guitar, and he'd look up at the crowd, and he had a cataract on one of his eyes. And when the light hit the cataract, his eye would glow. And people would say, oh, the evil eye, the evil eye. And then he would turn his back on certain passages, and people would say, that's that tuning the devil taught him. So let's go ahead and take a look at supposedly what happens. You find a deserted crossroads. You take your guitar, and you sit there, and you start to play. And you strum, and sometime between midnight and 3 a.m., you would feel a presence walk up behind you. And you would not dare to look because you knew it was the devil. You knew it was old scratch in the South. And then all at once, you would take your guitar and you would pass it over your shoulder. And this presence would take your guitar and you could hear him tuning it. And he was tuning it to a very special tuning. When the tuning stopped, you could feel the guitar being passed over your shoulder. Not a word was said. But if you took the guitar back then you'd sign your deal. And the deal was that you would have fame, adoring women, sort of like what, what you do with, an, with a podcast. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but when uh, he got the guitar, no. when he got, yeah, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> and when he took the guitar back, the devil taught him to play in graveyards at night. And it was this famous cemetery that was built in 1850. So you can imagine, here's Robert Johnson being taught by the devil. Now, What's cool about the old blues guys, you had people like, one of my favorite names was Blind Lemon Jefferson. Mm -hmm. You know, they had cool names. But the devil's name was Ike Zimmerman, and he came from Alabama. I don't know if he had a banjo on his name. He might have had Stella. <laughs> but when he, he went down to the Georgia city, and went up from the devil. Yeah, went, <laughs> yeah. And what happened was, you know, this is that was the legend. So one night in a, in a roadhouse, now there's stories before the roadhouse. So the story was that Johnson's appearance would change. And, uh, you know, people would look at him. He looked a little different each time he appeared. Well, that was a legend that would fill the place up. And Johnson, you know, he, he never denied it, but he never accepted the legend either. Now, you remember the movie, Oh, Brother, Who Art Thou? Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah I do remember the scene that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And he's waiting there, and he gets in the car, and they go sing in the can, you know? Mm -hmm. And then George Clooney turns around, and he says, Tommy, I believe you did sell your soul to the devil. Yeah, because the guy gets in the car, it. and he says, I just sold my soul to the devil. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Well, <laughs> see, the thing was, everybody's told, that's Robert Johnson. No, it was Tommy Johnson. And Tommy Johnson had a brother whose name was Liddell. Had nothing to do as far as being related to the original Robert Johnson. But the story goes that... Liddell said that his brother Tommy actually did make that deal with the devil. So that sort of goes into it. He wasn't the first blues man to supposedly enter into it. And then there was another blues pianist whose name was uh, Petey Wheatstraw. And he was known as the uh, devil's son-in-law. You know, Dolomite and made a movie called Petey Wheatstraw. Though, if you know who Dolomite is, Dolomite was this big black exploitation yeah. actor. And I actually, I, I may or may not actually own that on DVD. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there was there was a black exploitation movie with uh, Rudy Ray Moore uh, called Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law. Yeah. Well, see, I knew how he felt because I was married to the other sister. And, uh, <laughs> 
So, you know, more power to him. But one night Johnson was playing in a juke joint, and he had a habit of going into these different towns and juke joints and choosing a woman to be his companion while he was there. Well, this one was a bad choice because her husband owned the juke joint. And Sonny Boy Williamson told Robert Johnson, he said, do not drink out of an un, well, a bottle of liquor that's had the seal broken. He said, don't drink out of that. Well, one night he didn't listen and he drank out of a bottle of whiskey that was filled with strychnine. And according to the legend, it took him three days to die. And he was on his hands and knees howling like a dog. And he died at the age of 27, very young. And when you take a look at that, that became the legend. Now, I think if you were growing up in the 50s and you were listening to the blues, I think that story right there would make you listen to Robert Johnson. And a lot of people, when they hear his voice, he sounds like, I don't know, it's like it was recorded at slightly off-kilter speed because you can almost hear it's almost a painful sound. Well, what else would you expect for a guy who sold his soul to the devil? Mm-hmm. But that's what really brought uh, Eric Clapton into it. So he said, uh, Clapton said, you know, he said, I just can't sit and listen to Robert Johnson along with people who don't get it, you know, the, the power of the music. And, of course, he's done a lot for Robert Johnson's estate. And uh, he did the album, Me and Mr. Johnson, of course, Crossroads with Cream, and it introduced him to a new audience. So the legend was, that's what happened to Johnson. Now, I'm going to tell you a true story if you got a second. You want to oh, hear God. it? Yeah, yeah. We, Absolutely. <laughs> we we, we might right. have you all night. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, well, here's the story. It was uh, 2001, and Hellhounds on the Trails had been released. I'd done Coast to Coast many times. We talked about some of these stories. So three of my fraternity brothers that I graduated with had a party in Jackson, Tennessee, right outside Memphis. So I went down. I brought the girl I was dating. We went down to uh, spend the weekend. Got there on a Friday night. Saturday morning, Alan, the fraternity brother's home we stayed in, he gets us all together, and he says, today we got something special because today we're going to Clarksdale, Mississippi, and we're going where Highway 39 crosses Highway 61, the crossroads. And Gary's going to tell us the whole story on the way down. And everybody looked at me like, huh, a crossroads? So, you know, we got in the car, and I told them the story. and made it real dramatic. And when we pulled up, we found the old cemetery where Johnson claimed he was taught to play the guitar at night. And we all had our pictures taken. We took a group picture with a crossroads over our shoulder. Now, we took eight photos, and they were digital and on film. Well, none of them came out. And when we walked into the cemetery, and we were looking around, of course, Johnson's not buried there. There's three graves for Robert Johnson. So technically, we really don't know where he is. But as we walked into the cemetery, one of the girls found this black snake that was coiled around a tombstone. And what she does, I mean, a lot of people are usually afraid of snakes. And this was in March in the Mississippi Delta, and it's really a little early for snakes. So she takes this stick and starts beating the snake with it. And, That's you know, nice. I thought, wow, she's pretty brave. <laughs> That's pretty brave or pretty stupid, one. And I told her, I said, look, I don't think I'd do that. And I would say, you know, this is the crossroads. Robert Johnson said the devil taught him to play here. And you remember the story in the Bible, the devil took form of a serpent you're hitting that snake i said i think i'd drop that stick and let that snake go she did 
Mm-hmm. And I was half teasing, and the snake coiled off, you know, coiled and crawled away. And we stayed there for a while, and I'm sure that a lot of them weren't as interested as Alan and I were. But as we went back to the van, he looks at me and he says, Gary, you know what we got to do. I said, no, what do we have to do? He says, we got to bring some dirt back. Mm. So here we are in this country crossroads. We get uh, a couple objects. I know, I think we had, I forgot what tools we used. Screwdriver was one. And we started breaking up the dirt in the center of that crossroads. And he had a couple of sandwich bags, and we loaded two of them with dirt. One for him, one for me. Well, then we went to Tunica, Mississippi, where the casinos are, and I did pretty well. And then we went back to spend the last night there before we got up to go on Sunday. I had parked my car in Cookville, Tennessee, and rode down with this girl I was dating. And uh, so I knew I'd have to stop. So as we left the next morning, said our goodbyes, you know, we were headed to Nashville. And I realized that I had a couple of friends there that would really get a kick out of this and would have dinner together. So I called my attorney, and then I called Jamie Oldacre, who was uh, Eric Clapton's drummer. I figured he'd get a kick out of it. And then I called Leo Lyons, the bass player in 10 years after, and I knew that he was a huge blues fan. So we all met for dinner. And in the, at the end of dinner, I looked at him. I said, guess what I have in the car? I said, I have dirt from the crossroads. And I remember Jamie Oldacre looking at me with a real incredulous look. And he says, uh-uh, don't bring that in here. He said, that's too much mojo. And I said, mojo, what are you talking about? He said, look, Eric, when we played with Muddy Waters and Muddy Waters would open up the show, uh, one of the roadies for Muddy took his red Telecaster and was handing it to Clapton. And Clapton was afraid to touch it. He said, no, that's too much mojo, too much mojo. So I heard the mojo story. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Leon, Leo, he wanted to see it. So I showed him the dirt. I got my car in Cookville, which was about an hour and a half from where we were. I drove home. She drove to Chattanooga. When I got home, I'd forgot I had my cell phone turned off. And when I turned it on, my mailbox was full like it is now. But it was really packed. And when I was listening to the messages, The girl who had the stick that was beating the snake in the cemetery, as soon as she got home, she was rushed to the hospital with a brain aneurysm and was an emergency surgery. All right. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. Well, the next message said that my friend Alan, who drove us down and dug the dirt, he had had a heart attack 10 minutes after we left, and he was in intensive care. Jesus. Now... Then I get the phone call from the girl I was dating. She says, I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. She says, when I got home, my security system was going crazy, like there's something in the house. It's motion detector. And I go, what? And she said, and I went to my car, and you left that dirt in my car. And I thought, (laughs) oh, my God, I did. She's got my dirt. (laughs) Well, this lasted all night, and her son was involved in an accident. All this was just in minutes after getting back. So then I started saying, well, it must be time to play some psychology, you know. So the next day, she calls me from work. She says, I have to keep running home because the police are at my house, and I've had the security system checked, and it's fine. It's perfect. So I said, listen, here's what you do. I said, you take that dirt, and you drive on the bridge next to your house, 
and you throw that dirt in the water. Uh, she agreed to do it. And I thought, okay, a little psychology, that'll help, you know. Mm-hmm. So she starts to the bridge, and all of a sudden it starts pouring rain. And it was flash flooding. <laughs> and she throws nope. the dirt in the water. Yes. And I'm sitting there going, you know, I thought this would be sort of a calming effect. And now she thinks she's responsible for the flood in Chattanooga because of the dirt. <laughs> well, everybody survived. You know, which was great. I was very glad of that. And they had a surprise birthday for me up where I live. And they all came up. And I noticed that I had this gift from Alan. And it was all wrapped. And it felt, I knew it was glass. So when I unwrapped it, it looked like one of those old apothecary bottles from the 1930s that you would get, you know, from a drugstore at the time. And the bottle, you know, was kind of wavy. And it had a cork stopper. And when I looked in the bottle, it was half full of dirt because Alan brought me some of his. Nice. And there was a little, little, uh, I guess what you call just a little card that he wrote to Crossroads 2001. So what I do is when I'm writing, I have that, I have that dirt right now sitting next to me. And every now and then when I tell a really great spooky story, sort of glance over at that bottle of dirt. Now, if it started to glow, it would bother me, you know? <laughs> it just sits there like it's waiting. All right, now, the rest of the story was that same year, in the summer, I went with a group to uh, Europe, and one of our trips was to Rome. So when you're in Rome, I figured, hmm, I'll go to the Vatican. So we went to the Vatican, and uh, I went to the bookstore, and I said, I need to bring something back as a great, you know, m- memorable item. I can remember my trip to the, to the Vatican. So I go to the bookstore, and the nun's very polite behind the counter, and I thought, why not bring back a crucifix? Oh. So, yeah, I bought a crucifix, and I That's paid for it. That's not exactly something you buy at the Vatican gift shop, though. Sure I mean, not. I guess it is, but for the wrong reasons. Yeah, what yeah. else would you buy it? Well, it's kind of hard to narrow it down. My friend who went with me, he brought golf balls. Oh. Now, you think the crucifix oh. is bad. He had three golf balls he bought. Now, the story gets even better because as I was paying for it, the nun looks at me, and she says, would you like his holiness to bless this for you? I go, what? Would you like his holiness, the Pope, to bless this crucifix for you? I said, how much does it cost? <laughs> oh, it's free. <laughs> I thought, well, if it's free, you know, the Pope's going to bless it. It's Pope That's kind John of like Paul asking II. for the extended warranty, you know? <laughs> yeah, does it have a warranty? I don't know how this works. So I said, sure, have him bless it. And then my buddy who bought the golf balls, he said, would the Pope bless these golf balls? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> and she said, of course he would. Now, I haven't seen this guy since several years, but I never had the opportunity to ask him if the golf ball hit in a water hazard and just whirled to the other <laughs> side and went in hole in one. But we went out to dinner. When I got back to my hotel room, I noticed there was this plastic bag over my doorknob to the room. And when I walked inside, I opened the bag and. There was my crucifix. And with my crucifix, there was a ribbon that was a certificate of authenticity saying that Pope John Paul II had personally touched and blessed it. Well, I thought, you know, that's what makes it kind of cool. So I brought it back, and I think what happens is I'm writing, 
I have the dirt on the left side and the crucifix on the right side. So it sort of balances it out. You've and got I gotta one on tell each you shoulder. That, yeah, yeah. Left hand path, right hand path, right? And so when I'm riding, I sort of look at it and I feel like they balance out. But I've never had any problems. But the girl who went with me, I haven't seen her in years. And uh, she, she called me and she says, this Robert Johnson stuff is still cursing me. I said, what do you mean? She said, I went to this barbecue place in Chattanooga, and I went in to go to the bathroom. When I shut the door, there was a life-size picture of Robert Johnson on the back of the door, and he's <laughs> smiling at me. And I go, oh, yeah, stay away from that barbecue place. I don't know if Robert liked barbecue, but that's a true story. And, you know, they say sometimes that truth is stranger than fiction. But, you know, when I sit there and I think about it, and uh, one of the guys who went with me, uh, he had no idea any of those stories. But when he came back, and his he was a psychologist, and his friends say, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I went to this stupid crossroads where Robert Johnson sold his And they go, oh, my God, that is so cool. That's the coolest thing. So he was very popular for a long period mm-hmm. of time because he was so up on things. But, you know, he, he enjoyed it after he found out how cool it was. But uh, that is a true story. And... So far, nothing, but I'll talk to a group, and i say, you want to see the dirt? You want me to pass around? No, no, I don't want to touch that dirt. So I always thought that was kind of interesting. So I would so want to see that dirt. Yeah, I would. That's, yeah, I would, I, that's on my list of places to visit sometime in my life is to go to those crossroads. I, I didn't know that the cemetery and stuff was was right there. From what I understand, that whole area is built up now. There's like a, like mm-hmm. a radiator or something there and everything. Um but when the story took place, it was literally just a crossroads out in the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of these fields. Right. And so, it was outside, outside the city limits. Now, yeah. when you go to Clarksdale, when you do go, the place they say is the crossroads really isn't the crossroads. Mm-hmm. The one that they've got with the big signs saying the crossroads and all that. Oh, no, that's not the real one. Mm-hmm. you got to go to the real place by the Leatherman Plantation. But, um, you know, of course, I knew where the real place was, so we did that. So if you come down. Let me know. I'll meet you there. Oh, that'd be awesome. Uh, I think the uh, the most accurate telling, or the most accurate telling of the legend, is that old Ralph Macchio movie. I believe the Crossroads with uh, Robert. Oh Robert. yeah, yeah. Right. Do you know they were going to actually do the movie on Robert Johnson? Yeah, but they couldn't get the funding, so they said, "Okay, let's." And and it does show you what's the moral of the story: uh, the Karate Kid versus Steve Vai. <laughs> because the devil never plays fair. He's as the karate kid wax on, wax off, and thanks to Ry Cooter in the background, it looks like he's knows what he's doing. But you know, Steve Vai, he's really playing because you know the devil takes no prisoners. Mm-hmm. But you know, which I like about it was because you look at that scene, it takes place like in a church and everybody's dressed in black, because the whole idea of the of the blues was that you would. Uh, plant your wild oats on uh, Friday and Saturday night, and then you go to church on Sunday to pray that they didn't take or whatever, that you could save your soul. Mm -hmm. So you had that combination of Christianity versus myth and legend, and that's where the Robert Johnson thing comes in. But the movie is really the only one that actually goes into detail about it. I like the part where the devil appears and he says, well, well, you were 16 last time I saw you at this old crossroads, Willie Brown. And, you know, I thought, well, that is so cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you watch it, but, you know, the, the karate kid versus Steve Vai. Be careful. <laughs> Be careful when you make a deal 
Right. Now, how did that legend all come about? Because I've always read that it was there's it's it's one of those timeless stories, but that it was brought to the blues in America through voodoo, and it was actually through legba. And yeah, very good. And you would like if you wanted to gamble or something like that, you would like give him your dice or your playing deck or something. And mm. Legba only through through Christianity has like been become known as the devil, and and Voodoo he's actually a very kind old man. Correct me if I'm wrong about any of this stuff. <laughs> oh, you're doing great. I'm impressed. <laughs> oh, I've done I've done my homework. Well, I've I've done a lot of studying even beyond the whole legend of Robert Johnson. Like at the crossroads is usually where they would hang and kill mm. people, like witches and so forth, because they wanted people. They wanted them. They wanted you to suffer even after you died. They wanted to make sure that you were stuck in purgatory, and that's kind of what the crossroads represents. It represents like change or you know crossroads mm-hmm. of your life or whatever. And if I'm right, Legba was the guardian between the two realms, and he was neither good nor evil. Exactly. He was just a really kindly old man, but he was terrifying to look at. Um, he could take messages from the dead to the living yeah and also in crossroads when they buried you they buried you in a crossroads so that people could walk over your grave exactly mm-hmm. yeah and, we're not consecrated you know, ground it's unconsecrated exactly and that's where the criminals were hanged and buried there witches were uh executed there witches met at crossroads if you've read young goodman brown that's where young goodman brown meets the devil at a crossroads mm-hmm. And uh, with Nathaniel Hawthorne. So now we're going back to 19th century. But you have that whole story, and you've done an excellent job explaining it. Because Oh, thanks. Legba, <laughs> no, no, you did. It's fabulous. I'll, I'll tell you. I'm going to give you a compliment. Of all the radio shows I've ever done, and I've, and I've talked about Robert Johnson for years, I've never had a host who knows what you know about Legba who can bring this up, and I'm just sitting here shaking my head in agreement. And when you think about when slaves were brought to the United States, they were stopped. They stopped in uh, the Caribbean where they were broken in. And then from their religion or voodoo and hoodoo, they were brought over and they were taught Christianity. So they accepted Christianity and you had that cross between both as they were pushed from one faith to the other. And that's when Legba became the devil and not this kindly old man who was the guardian of the crossroads. And so when you have that, that goes back to the legend is probably as far back as the 1600s, early 1700s. So in the South, it's a popular story, and they go through all these details. And, of course, you know, living in the South and hearing the legends where rock and roll came from, and, you know, I mean, I'm going to have to – get on a soapbox for a second, because I've always felt the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, should have been in Memphis. And the only reason I we say that... We fought for it up here in Detroit, and we were crushed that we didn't get it. Because <laughs> well, we had Motown, Detroit. so, you know, we thought, yeah, it belongs here. We've got well, Motown, Motown and everything, so... Yeah. yeah, of course, with Memphis, you're saying it was Sun Records, Stax Records, you know, uh, you have all the, you know, the, the Sound of Soul with Stax, you have Elvis Presley, you have American Studios, but what's cool is B.B. King played there, Robert Johnson played there, Howlin' Wolf played there on the river, and I was thinking, man, that's almost the whole full tilt of why it should be there. Now, the main reason is I am sure that both of us and our cities were outbid and I've often wondered instead of, you know, I mean, I'm not, I don't have any problem with where it's located now, but if they were going for money, 
why didn't they put a Mouseketeer hat on it and put it in Orlando? You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where everything goes for you know, how much money we can make. I know I was at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and, no, the Hard, you know, the hard Rock Cafe in London. And when I go, they let me play the guitars downstairs in the vault. So here I am, you know, uh, the first one I gravitate to was a Stratocaster that uh, Dwayne Allman used when he played at Muscle Shows. So I played that, thinking, wow, Dwayne got a great sound out of this. And then uh, I picked up a Fender Broadcaster that Jeff Beck played in the Yardbirds, which is one of my favorite bands. So, you know, I, I, as I was playing it, I said, let's do some Yardbird songs. So I went into Over, Under, Sideways, Down, some really old cool licks. And the guys at the Hard Rack, they loved it. And then I played Jimi Hendrix's Left-Handed Flying V, and I said, all right, where is Jimmy Page's double neck Gibson he used on Stairway to Heaven? And they were all angry because uh, the Hard Rock moved that guitar to Orlando. And, you know, so it looks like Orlando got about everything. But, you know, just being able to touch the instruments and, and knowing the stories and, and comparing it with Robert Johnson and look at Led Zeppelin. You know, when I was Plant just going to say that Lobo yeah. wanted to ask you about um, about well, Jimmy Page. I'm Sure. Let's start. You guys asked the question. And well, Lobo, you, you go ahead then. Well, well, all I was going to say was, I'm not going to go about the early part. I'll just tell you that when Plant and Page got back after the Unleaded tour, they had an album called Walking Into Clarksdale. You remember that? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I thought, well, Jimmy Page knows that story pretty well. Yeah. And, of course, the early thing about Zeppelin. Now, you know, people who get into this. In 1969, when Led Zeppelin hit and their album went to number one, do you know which album they beat out? Abbey Road. And, you know, yeah, Abbey Road, what an album. Mm -hmm. And then all at once, here comes this album with a lesser known studio guitar player who most people couldn't name him. If you said, oh, listen to Hurdy Gurdy Man, listen to uh, Sunshine Superman, well, that's his playing. And then you had a, I think he was 18 at the time, Robert Plant, who nobody had ever heard of, a drummer by the name of John Bonham that no one had ever heard of. Mm. And you have a studio player, his name was John Paul Jones, and he was an arranger and he was a session guy. And they all got together. And here these guys come out of nowhere and knock the Beatles out of number one. And there was a rumor that people who very close to them still whisper about that there was a agreement drawn up and signed in blood where the members of Led Zeppelin and where they had promised to give their souls if they made it to number one and they were the, you know, be one of the greatest rock bands that ever lived. Now I can imagine an 18 year old Robert Plant, you know, Oh, that sounds cool. And maybe a Bonham, but maybe the whole deal was that they're creating their own myth so you go see these guys because they may have sold, sold the devil. And you know how much into the occult Jimmy Page was. Mm-hmm. But one of the members didn't sign. So what I usually do without giving names, I'll say, name the members of Led Zeppelin, and I'll tell you which one didn't sign. And the first name comes to your mind is Jimmy Page, I think. And then you think of no. Robert Plant. Who would you think of? John Bonham. John Bonham. Okay. You go with Bonham. You play drums? No, I don't. Okay, but let me tell you. I mean, let me. I go with John Paul Jones because he was the only one that really didn't. Well, you know, he was the only one that didn't really do anything after 
after Led Zeppelin, he just kind of went on and became a studio producer for the most part. I go with John Bonham because John Bonham's the only one who died. Yeah, <laughs> but that's part of the luck that they were having. But Page so here, went on. Here's the thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm, he did. And Plant, too. Very famous. Well, the answer was John Paul Jones. Because if, if they name them, most people will say Bonham, Plant, Page, and what's the other guy's name? And <laughs> it's the easiest name to remember is John Paul Jones. But they'll say, what's that guy's name? What's that guy's name? I said, that's the guy that didn't sign, according to the legend. Hmm. So I remember Richard Cole had actually um, told that story, that one of the roadies was going out with Page to look for some uh, – Alistair Crowley memorabilia, and Cole turned to the roadie, and the roadie said, listen, uh, is he really into this dark stuff? And Cole said, well, let me tell you. He said, uh, we lose a lot of roadies because he sacrifices them after he gets gets his items. So, you know, tongue-in-cheek. But, you know, mystique, it helps, sells records. Now, here's a funny story that I've not told. I'm going to share it with you. I had a phone call from a friend of mine who's a rock promoter who books all the big bands. And he said, listen, can you get me in touch with Led Zeppelin? Oh, well, I've got a friend who used to work with Led Zeppelin. He said, can you arrange a conference call? I said, yeah, yeah, I can. So I called my friend in London, and he agrees to the conference call. And my friend here, who's the promoter, he says, listen, he said, here's what I want to do. He said, I have $20 million in escrow. He said, I will pay Led Zeppelin $20 million to perform one show at the Dallas football stadium. They can choose any night they want to choose, but I will pay them $20 million. And because Gary helped and because you're helping, I'm going to give you a percentage plus tickets. Well, I do have two tickets from the canceled uh, Led Zeppelin tour in Chicago when John Bonham died. Never been used. I got those two because I collect. But, uh-huh. you know, the guy said, well, let me call. Well, I get an email about two hours later, and my friend sent me a copy of the one he got from Richard Cole. And Richard says, well, I don't know. I said, I was with Robert yesterday, and he seems pretty happy. So I thought, well, good. Maybe this can happen because, man, it'd be great to see Led Zeppelin again. That's when after they did their little show in London, their get-together. And so then, within about three days, I was reading, <laughs> reading an article where Robert Plant went ballistic. He says, I am not a jukebox. I am not ever going to play Led Zeppelin. I said, oh, my God, I have broken up Led Zeppelin forever because <laughs> you know, he was offered $20 million. And then at the end of it, he says, but I might play if Jimmy's written more music. So instead of really having a great show, it seems like I drove them further apart. Now, I'm not going to admit that to anybody else, but the whole idea was that was kind of funny. Well, they but did do a couple of shows, though. They did the one where uh, Phil Collins came out and drummed, and then I think they did one where uh, yeah. Jason Bonham came out and drummed. Um, mm-hmm. They did a lot. This was just a few years ago. So yeah. this was like a year and a half ago when yeah. this happened. But, yeah, they did the uh, Live Aid show, and they did, uh, let's see, the one they did, the what is it, the O theater i don't remember uh, they, i do remember the big rumor a couple of years ago that they were going to get back together again so i guess that mm-hmm. was your fault thank you for that uh, you was, you're <laughs> welcome. Uh, but i'm going to try 
I tell you what I'll do. The next time I do the phone call, I'll put the dirt in another room and I'll hold the crucifix. And maybe no, no, you got to tell them you have the dirt. That will make them want to do it. You could be like, I've got a veil. Well, that's true. I'll meet you guys and show you the dirt. <laughs> you need to say, I've got the dirt right here. And if uh, I don't get this going, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, you need to do that. That's kind of funny. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll do anything to get them back together. You know, I'd yeah. love to see it. I have seen Zeppelin twice, though. No, three times. I've seen them three times. And, uh, you know, it's one of those memorable moments that you're seeing greatness, you know, when you go to concerts. But that's kind of funny. Now, I guess you may want to talk about how Jimmy Page got into all this stuff. Yeah, how yep. the, the whole relationship between, like, Crowley. Crowley goes back over and over again throughout the rock stars of that time. And Jimmy Page was the big Crowley rock star connection. Um, and then I believe you had, uh, I don't know if the Stones were associated with Crowley, but there was reference to Crowley and the Beatles, you know, and, um, mm. you know, what's the deal? Well, I guess Jimmy Page would be the best place to start because he was the one that was most heavily involved with it. And that and the whole thing with, with Kenneth Anger taking 20 years or however long it was to come out with a 20 minute movie that Jimmy Page <laughs> was supposed to write music first. for. <laughs> right. So I guess start Lucifer with Jimmy Page. <clears throat> okay. Well, first of all, let's go back to 1966. Because in 1966 is a year that, uh, let's see, uh, gosh, when uh, the Satanic Church started in 69, Kenneth Anger went to England in 66. He was a member, too. But when he went to England, he noticed the power that rock bands had over an audience. It's like they're mesmerized. It was all this power he wanted to tap into. Well, the Beatles would obviously be a good choice. And if you look at Sgt. Pepper's, which I can't believe is their 50th anniversary now, but if you look on the top row on the left-hand side, I think it's the second figure on the left from the top, and that's Aleister Crowley. And some people will say that if you look closely at his shaved head, you can see three red sixes. And uh, they're in different proportions across the top of his head, forehead, whatever. But... That was the idea that he was called the Great Beast. Now, the Stones obviously were performing live, so Anger got close to them, and he was doing a movie called Invocation of My Demon Brother. And Mick Jagger decided to write some music for it on a synthesizer. His girlfriend, Marianne Faithful, was in the movie. I think she played Lilith, and there's a scene at dawn where she's climbing this pyramid, and then finally, Jagger's brother, Chris, actually played the role of, of Lucifer in it. Well, the movie never really went anywhere, but Anger amazed them with uh, his knowledge of the occult. And after a while, they got scared. And I know that uh, they saw him at a party, and they could see him walking around and found out that he was out of the country, and he wasn't there. But he was telling them that he was able to project himself. And then he told Keith uh, Richards that, you know, in the occult, he started, they were all into it. It told him how to paint his door to bring him success. So one night when uh, Keith goes to bed, he wakes up the next morning and his door's painted. But the door's locked and nobody could have done it. So that sort of scared him. And uh, Mick Jagger started wearing crosses around his neck. So Kenneth Anger sort of struck out with the stones even though they did help him on Invocation of My Demon Brother. But then, Anger meets Jimmy Page. And here's how it happened. Jimmy Page owned a bookstore called the Equinox. Mm -hmm. And in this bookstore, he had all these occult books. 
but he was really interested in collecting any illustrated manuscript, annotated manuscript of Aleister Crowley. And he also had the ceremonial daggers, all of that. So the ultimate collectible goes on sale for auction, and it was Boleskine House. Mm -hmm. Now, Boleskine House, on the banks of lovely Loch Ness, Mm -hmm. was where Crowley lived. And the story goes that he had summoned many elemental spirits into the house. But his big mistake was he did not bind them. Now, before he bought the house, it was built in the medieval period as a manor, and it was built on the exact spot that a church was burned to the ground with its entire congregation trapped inside. And the history had of the house was dark. Uh, It seems like it really affected women. And what would happen, there were so many women who were committed to mental institutions who stayed there. Crowley's daughter died while he lived there. There was one man who was sort of reminds me of The Shining. He actually had his family trapped in a closet trying to get to them. And when he was arrested, he goes mad. Another man was running a grocery list and takes out a cleaver and cuts off his own hand. So that's the darkness of the house. Well, Page was just fascinated with it. So he buys it. The person who was bidding against him was Kenneth Anger. Now, when he bought the house, he wanted it painted. So he had these satanic symbols and occult symbols placed on the walls. But the funny thing about Jimmy Page, he bought the house, but he never stayed there. Not at night. And I did an interview. I I was involved with a series called VH1 Confidential. Mm -hmm. And we had this on the uh, Jimmy Page and the curse of Led Zeppelin. And Malcolm Dent was one of Jimmy Page's friends, and he was the housekeeper. He watched over it. And he said that one night while he was staying there, he mentioned it, Paige never did. But when he was staying there, he said he was in his room and he heard the sound scratching at his door. And then it started pounding on the door and the whole room was reverberating. And he said, I must admit, I was quite terrified. And he sits up and turns. Yeah, I can see that. And he turns (laughs) the light on next to his bed. And I think he got in a little bit of trouble because Jimmy Page didn't want anyone going through his residence, but I think Malcolm took a, for a few bucks, he'd take him for a tour. And the story goes there was a secret passageway that a wizard used who had lived there before Crowley that entered into the house through the, through the passage out into a cemetery. So you had these legends. And then when Crowley died, I think his son Alexander may have died in the house. But what happened was that when Crowley left the house, he forgot to bind the spirits. So these spirits were roaming through the house. And But Paige said, listen, to Kenneth Anger, he said, why don't you come stay in the house? You know, so, you know I, I want it because I, I really like the memorabilia, but i am really not got any plans to stay here at night. So you're working on a film. Why don't you use my basement and, you know, do your film? And Anger agreed. And he said, okay, but you've got to promise me You'll do the music track. And Paige agrees. It's not enough that you're letting me use your castle. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Write some songs for me. Write the soundtrack to a movie I'm, I'm doing called Lucifer Rising. So Paige agreed. But he only came up with a few minutes of music. And Anger got ticked off. So what Anger did, he put a curse on Jimmy Page. He put a curse on the band. 
And what happened after that, I mean, it was strange things. Like on the Presence album, if you remember when you read the history of the album, uh, Robert Plant and his wife were involved in a terrible car accident. I think it might have been in Rhodes and almost was killed. I mean, Plant was in a wheelchair. There was another person in the car, and that was Jimmy Page's daughter, Scarlett. She was unhurt. Then on one tour, John Paul Jones broke his left hand. So they had to cancel the tour because it was impossible for him to play. John Bonham had three car accidents. And when you talk about, let's see, another one with Plant. In 1977, they were on tour. Everything looked like it was working. Now, Jimmy Page was untouched by the whole thing. But they were in New Orleans, and, and uh, Plant gets a phone call telling him that his son Carrick had died. And it was from a stomach virus, which is very, very rare. And then when they had two that showed up was Plant and Bonham. Of course, they were best friends. And I think that drove a split between Jimmy Page and Robert Plant that's going to last a while. And then when John Bonham died and at the house, a lot of people would say, oh, he died in Peleskin. He actually died in the boathouse in Windsor. And when he died, there was just no reason to go on because, I mean, how do you replace John Bonham? And so when he died, that was it. So when the unleaded thing came about, it was amazing that Plant and Page got back together because the rumor was that sometimes when you sow your soul to the devil, he takes the most precious thing you have. And a lot of people thought, well, that was his son. And then they sort of wouldn't work together again. But like when they did their last tour and, and Robert Plant said that he wasn't going to have anything to do with Zeppelin unless Jimmy wrote some new music. Mm-hmm. So you have that great story. It was called the Zeppelin curse and Kenneth Anger supposedly, or he does claim that he's the one to put it on. Now, while we were doing this on VH1, they flew me out to LA and I don't know if you know the name Michael Oakes, but Michael was Phil Oakes. Mm-hmm. Michael is Phil Oakes brother. Of course, Phil was a great, a protest singer who actually committed suicide, hanged himself. Mm-hmm. But uh, what happened was that while we were at the house filming the segment, the director asked me, she said, tell us a story of Kenneth Anger. And I go, well, I don't know if I want to talk about Kenneth Anger. He'd placed all these curses on people that seemed to work. You know, like uh, he put a curse on who was it when they did Helter Skelter. I mean, all these, Bobby Bosley, some of the Helder Skelter murders, all this stuff was going on. And I knew he belonged to the Church of Satan. I was sort of just teasing, maybe. And I said, okay. <laughs> and I sat there and I said, Kenneth Anger, when I said his name to do the lead on on television, as soon as I said, Kenneth Anger, a dog started howling outside at that precise second. And then they looked at me, and they said, okay, let's talk about something else. (laughs) (laughs) You can see where they'd want to change the subject. Yeah. See, the funny thing is that in the South, there's a legend. And that is, if you hear a dog howl at night, then that means someone who listens to the sound is going to die, or there'll be a death in your family. Now, how I learned that, I was going to school uh, in the summer at university, and my roommate's girlfriend was there. We were watching movies, and about 2 o'clock in the morning, you hear this howling dog. She says, oh, my gosh, one of our, someone close to one of us is going to die tonight. 
And I looked at her and rolled my eyes, you know. She said, no, no, no. I said, look, I hear dogs all the time. And she said, yeah, you hear them bark. You don't hear them howl. And I go, hmm, maybe so. So all at once, about 6 o'clock in the morning, I hear the phone ring. And my roommate, Steve, gets up. He answers the phone. And then he comes in the room. He says, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, my uncle died last night at 2 o'clock, which was the exact time that his dog was howling. So when I think about that, you know, I think about Nick Drake's uh, black-eyed dog, and I think that if you read uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's biography, he talks about he was born and his mad dog was howling outside his window. Well, those are probably pretty bad signs, but, you know, as you go through it. But, you know, a lot of the, the folklore that goes with it is very easily adaptable and accessible to rock and roll, like Jimmy Page. But now I've heard uh, Leo Lyons was telling me, that Jimmy's not into it like he used to be. And so maybe that's interesting. But anyway, you know, he looks more like a, a banker now. If you watch him on television, that long white hair tied behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's not exactly the Jimmy that we knew in Led Zeppelin. And if you want to see Boleskine House, I should tell you, and the song remains the scene, uh, the same. You remember the scene where the first time you see Jimmy Page, he's sitting there with a hurdy-gurdy. Yeah, and all I was going to ask you about that. Turns. Yeah. Yeah, and his eyes are blo- his blood red, yeah. glaring mm-hmm. at you. And it reminds me of the line from the uh, Raven, and his eyes had all the seeming of a demon's that was dreaming. Mm-hmm. And that sort of hits me every time I see that scene. But if you remember the scene where Jimmy Page is climbing the mountain, and the hermit is waiting for him at the top, then... If you look below, the building below him is Boleskine. Mm. So it does have a few scenes that are shot into the film. Didn't they uh, but, film a scene there with him walking down a hallway with a torch in his hand or something like that? They actually filmed it below the castle, or was that is that a different spot? It may have been a different spot there because I know that you know all of them had these uh, fantasy segments that were placed into it. Yeah, and uh, I do remember that scene. But see, a lot of people think Boleskine is a big castle. It's really not. It's more of a manor house. And the one thing is, now this is kind of funny, but Boleskine became a bed and breakfast. Oh, Get great. out of here. And can you imagine checking in and uh, sitting there, you know, and saying, okay, uh, I'll have a ghost on toast. But when, <laughs> you're, when you're in there, uh, they didn't want you to film it. I, know, I remember we were going to do something with that. And now the house burned down or most of it burnt to the ground around Christmas, I think last year. And which is, you know, maybe there are a few little dark forces there, but maybe fires what purifies, but whatever. We're never going to be able to go investigate that property if you're into the paranormal, because it's probably what I always call the number one haunted attraction in rock and roll history <laughs> is Boleskine House. Mm. What awesome. was the uh, what was the other one you wanted to ask about, Rogan? I Lobo, Rogan. God, Ro- uh, speaking <laughs> of yourself, <laughs> here I go speaking of myself in third person again. What was well, the other one you wanted to ask? Yeah, though it's it seems as though uh, all we got to do is point you in a direction and you just go. So uh, hit us with some Buddy <laughs> Holly knowledge. Excuse me, Buddy Holly, the curse. Of Buddy oh, Holly. Buddy Holly. Well, what you know, I'm glad you I'm glad you asked that question because right now. I've been hired to be a consultant on a Buddy Holly documentary. Oh, no, really? Really. That's awesome. And I told him, I said, all right, and this is from the new Buddy Holly Hall of Fame in Lubbock. 
Mm-hmm. And when they called to talk to me about it, I said, all right, I have one stipulation. I said, I want you to tell the truth. Okay. Because I said the movie, mm-hmm. the Buddy Holly story, is the worst rock history in rock and roll history. Nothing is worse than that movie. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, when they don't even know the names of the crickets, like the drummer instead of Jerry Allison, if you watch the movie, they call him Jesse. Mm-hmm. All right? And, you know, it's, and then the the part that really bothers me is that the scene where at the end he's playing the Clear Lake Auditorium. The last show they played was the Surf Ballroom. So and he, he comes out on Fantasy Island. Made it up. <laughs> made it up. And he comes out wearing a, a white dinner jacket with his, his Stratocaster, and there's an orchestra on stage with him. And the orchestra on stage, you know, has these girls playing violin and a, and a harp. And then when the saxophone solo on True Love's Ways comes up, King Curtis is playing it. Listen, those guys weren't even there. They didn't have an orchestra. You had Buddy Holly. You had Waylon Jennings on bass. You had Tommy Alsop on guitar. And the drummer's name was Carl Bunch. And Carl was placed in the hospital because he had frostbite on his feet. Now, I have the last interview ever recorded with Carl Bunch. And he talks about being on the bus when it was 40 below zero. And he talks about uh, they were burning newspapers in the aisles to stay warm because the heaters went out on the bus. Well, when you burn newspapers, it fills the bus up with smoke, so you got to roll the windows down to let the smoke out. <laughs> so I can understand why Buddy Holly wanted to rent a plane. Yeah, now, that makes sense. You, yeah, you take a look at all that. Now, you know, the one final thing about the movie, the movie was so bad, two things. Number one, Buddy Holly's mother and father sued them for how really? they were portrayed. Yes, and one. Good. Oh, yeah, because in the movie, it seems like, well, now, buddy, we've given you time. You need to go to school and get on your life. Your music's not going to do anything. Well, that never happened. Matter of fact, Buddy Holly's mother wrote the lyrics to Maybe Baby. Really? All that was wrong. Yeah, yeah, all that was wrong. And now, I admit the movie was bad, but the guy who wrote the screenplay committed suicide the day the movie was released. Oh, jeez. Odd, huh? So, you know, right now we don't know what happened to the plane. And it seems that I'll tell you this. I know where the plane is. Okay. It's never been seen since 1959. And the lady who owns it goes back into the legend. And she Hmm. called me, and I know she wanted me to write a book on their version of what happened that night. Mm -hmm. So I was listening. I'm a pretty friendly guy. And I said, I've got one question for you. I said, do you have the plane? It got real quiet. And she said, we have some of it. And I go, okay. So my goal is in this new documentary, I want to go there and see if we can film the plane Mm -hmm. and talk about it. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. But one thing I noticed about Buddy Holly, there's been a lot of bad luck associated with people who were very close to him who took his place. Mm-hmm. Now, when you go back to the accident, you know, I often wondered this. When they got into the plane that night, the big bopper got in behind the pilot. Richie Valen sat behind Buddy. And as Buddy was getting in the plane, you had uh, Tommy Alsop, 
who had given up his seat by coin toss to Richie Valens. Of course, Dion says, no, no, that wasn't true. They offered it to me, and I gave it to Richie. And then I'll sit there, cynical as I am, and I'll sit there and say, then why did you wait 50 years to tell the story? Yeah, right. I can understand you know, that. Something's wrong. Maybe you got a new album coming out, Dion, but uh, <laughs> a new project. You want a little attention. But, you know, that sort of gets me. But Buddy turned to Waylon Jennings, and Waylon tells the story or told the story. And he'd say, Buddy turned to him and he said, Hey, Waylon, I hope you freeze your butt off and your old bus breaks down. And Waylon looked at him and said, Yeah, and I hope your old plane crashes. Oh. Last thing he said to him. Yeah, last thing he said. So when the plane crashes, I've often wondered why Buddy Holly's body was found on one side of the fuselage, Richie Valens on the other, and the big bopper who sat behind the pilot was 40 feet in front of the, uh, front of the plane over a fence, and the pilot was strapped into the plane. So I got to know the big bopper's son, J.P. Jr., who never met his father. He was... Um, Let's see. He was born two months after his father's death. Oof, and he always brutal. wanted to know as much about him as possible. So his fa- his son believed that his father may have survived initially and was in all this intense pain crawling to that frozen cornfield to try to get help. So what he did, he also heard the other legend that what happened was that a gun went off in the plane, shot the the pilot and killed him. That's why the plane crashed within nine miles of takeoff. Well, he decided that the city of Beaumont, Texas was going to have his father's body moved to a nice big monument that they were building for him. Well, while they're digging his body up, he decided he'd have an autopsy done on his dad's body. So he calls Dr. Bass from the body farm, very famous, you know, Mm -hmm. person, or as far uh, as, you know, doing these things, to come and look at his dad's body. He agreed. So when he gets to Beaumont, they take up the coffin, and they had this little building by a funeral home. And Dr. Bass turns to JP, and he says, I don't think you need to see this, because the father had been dead 50 years. And he says, uh, I don't think you need to look at this. He said, you need to go, and he's trying to tell him about how terrible it would look. But when they opened the coffin, and JP was there, they said that it looked just like he was still alive. Huh. That his flat top was perfect, like he'd just been to a barber shop. Huh. And what was kind of ghoulish to me was that JP stayed there alone with his father's body for about an hour. And then he brought his kids in so they could see their grandfather. And I'm sitting here listening to this, and I'm saying, God, JP, what? You know, that's kind of, I couldn't do that. And so anyway, Dr. Bass did not want to do a physical autopsy, so he used an x-ray autopsy. And he's found that every bone in the big bopper's body was broken. And that way he died instantly. Well, that made the son feel better. Now, as far as the gun, when they moved the plane that spring after the crash on February 3rd, they found Buddy Holly's pistol. And it had been fired. Hmm. So, and there was a seat. Now, Jerry Dwyer would tell you, if he were still alive, that there was a bullet hole in the back of the seat. And that's how the plane went down. And I knew that was the story they were going to say. And I don't want to really run it, but I can give you the answer. And the answer is that only one autopsy was performed 
and that was on Roger Peterson, the pilot. And if he had been shot, there would be an evidence of that. I mean, they would have found the blue mm-hmm. because no other autopsy on the other three. And what's kind of ghoulish was that when the coroner took their bodies in to do the examination, he stuck his hand in their pocket and took their money out and paid himself his fee. Yeah. You know, sent the rest of it back. Now, that's kind of, you know, I sit there and I go, my gosh, you know, I that's cold. couldn't imagine it. Yeah, it's very cold. And uh, one of my really dear friends is Peggy Sue. And she's the one that Buddy Holly wrote the song for, who was married to Jerry Allison. Mm-hmm. And she told me that when the body came in, I think it was on February, well, probably the 5th or 6th, they had the funerals on February 7th, that his nephew, who was married to his sister, or his, his niece, went to identify the body because the brothers couldn't. And when they looked at it, you know, he said he almost he threw up because it was such a terrible sight. That really gives you an image. But, you know, whatever happened, there's still people who are really debating it. So knowing where the plane is and being a part of that might be a very cool thing just to see it that nobody else had. And uh, so we do that. But after Holly died, he was replaced in the crickets by a 17-year-old guy from Lubbock whose name was David Box. Mm -hmm. And David actually moved in with Peggy Sue and Jerry Allison in Hollywood. And his dad went with him. They signed an agreement so that David could record with the crickets. And he recorded a song called Don't You. And then he recorded a song called Peggy Sue Got Married, which was the second song Buddy Holly wrote for Peggy Sue. And the only way most people can tell the difference between David Box and Buddy Holly is that the crickets by themselves, it's David Box singing the song because he sounds almost like him. I'm exactly like him. And Mm. David Box always wanted to be like Buddy Holly. So he plays with the crickets for a while. He leaves them. He has a regional hit called Summer Girl that was was done in Nashville. He's playing a fair in Houston. And he gets in a small plane with two members of his band. And the plane crashes and he's killed. Jesus Christ. Same age as Buddy Holly. Now, here's another story. You ever watch uh, Final Destination? Oh, yeah. Yeah, check this out. Buddy Holly's best friend was Eddie Cochran. And mm-hmm. one of the odd things was that Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran were much, much more famous in England than they were here. And Eddie Cochran was supposed to be on the winter dance party, but he had to cancel because he had a TV show. And when he finds out about the plane crash, he knew that if he was there, he would have been on that plane. So he thought death was stalking him. They took him into a recording studio, and he recorded a song called Three Stars. And the song is where he's talking through it about three new stars in heaven, and one was for Richie, one was for the big bobber, and one was for Buddy. And when he starts talking about him, his voice breaks, and he starts to cry. So when he recorded it, he goes over to the producer, and he says, if you release this song, I'll never record another one. And then he does a song called Three Steps to Heaven. He goes to England. His girlfriend, Sharon Sheely, comes with him, and he had her go out and buy all the Buddy Holly singles she could find. So one night she comes in, and he's sitting in a darkened room playing those songs over and over again. She looks at him. She says, Eddie, you got you to gotta let go of this. you got to let Buddy go. And he turns to her, and he says, no, because I'll be seeing Buddy soon. And he went to a fortune teller. 
And he woke up that night screaming, I'm going to die, and there's not anything I can do about it. Well, it was in April 1960. He was going to fly back to California in a taxi. A wheel blows out. He's thrown out, lands on his guitar. Sharon Sheely's back's broken. Gene Vincent was in the car. His leg was severely damaged. It had already been damaged in a motorcycle accident. And they take him to uh, Bath into the hospital because he was unconscious. Within an hour of the accident, the crickets, who were in England, come over to see Eddie Cochran. When they leave, an hour later, Eddie Cochran dies. Just like he had predicted. Now, to make it even stranger, if you're going to talk about rock and roll, there are two famous record producers in the late 50s, early 60s. In the United States, you have Phil Spector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Phil. yeah, crazy Phil. <laughs> That's and a story into nuts. itself. <laughs> yeah. And then in England, you have a guy whose name was Joe Meek. Yep. Now, if you know your rock and roll history, all the kids in England loved American rock and roll. And mm-hmm. no British group had ever had a number one hit in the United States until Telstar, an instrumental, was released by a group called the Tornadoes. Joe Meek had written a song. And he was probably the number one Buddy Holly fan in England. So he's playing, he he was into the occult. And they're playing tarot cards. And as they're playing tarot, one guy shuffled the deck, one guy turned it over, the other wrote the interpretation. And they get a message that says, February 3rd, Buddy Holly dies. Buddy Holly had never been to England. But the crickets and Buddy Holly came to England in March of 1958. So Joe Meek had frantically tried to get in touch with him on February 3rd, 58. Couldn't do it. So when he comes to England, he says, listen, buddy, you need to be very careful on February 3rds. Oh, yeah, I will, you know, as he says. And when he goes back, of course, that's when the plane crash occurred, the very next February 3rd, 1959. Mm -hmm. Now, Joe Meek was convinced that he had tapped into something. So he'd written a song called A Tribute to Buddy, and he had a seance where he says he contacted Buddy Holly from the other side, and he played the song for him, and the message came back, see you on the charts. And the song did all right, but I mean, if you ever heard the song, you you need to look it up and listen to it. Uh, A guy named Mike Berry recorded it, but what happened after that Uh, Meek gets more and more into the occult. I mean, he was really becoming more paranoid. And uh, what happened was he was arrested for solicitation in a men's restroom. And in England at that time, you'd be put in prison. Oh, man. Yeah, it was against the law. It was against the law. I mean, that's why Oscar Wilde left England for Paris. And while we're tying that together, why do you think Jim Morrison went to Paris? (laughs) <laughs> Ray Manzarekal tells you that he went to Paris because that was the artistic city to concentrate on his poetry. True. The real reason is France will not extradite you for a sex crime. Yeah, well. So if Jim Morrison had, you know, for his uh, indecent exposure in Miami, he wasn't going to go to go back and be placed in federal prison because he was convinced he'd be murdered. So he, that was one of the reasons he went to Paris. And Oscar Wilde also went to Paris for that reason. And I remember Oscar Wilde's last words were, 
that what either that wallpaper goes or I do. <laughs> <laughs> so the wallpaper stayed. And uh, so when you take a look at all that, you're, you're saying, oh, my gosh, you know. So he becomes deeper and deeper after the prison things. He started seeing bugging devices in his studio. And by the way, really great trivia question. At the beginning of Telstar, where you hear the satellite, mm-hmm. what he does is he mics the flushing of a toilet and plays it backwards. Oh my <laughs> that's really? what sense. Yeah. That's the toilet backwards? Yeah. And he recorded wow. it backwards. That makes the satellite sound at the beginning of Tel- at Telstar. So now you guys have got a great trivia question. Oh, that's but great. Everybody's going to go out and like listen great. to that on YouTube now to hear that song. <laughs> yeah. And so you can hear it. It's, it's really good. And, uh, you know, so it's cool. Well, his landlady was going to evict him. So she goes up to see him. He had an assistant whose name was Patrick Pink, who was working downstairs. And all at once, as she gets upstairs, you can hear some yelling. And then you hear a shotgun blast. And she comes tumbling down the steps, and her back is smoldering with buckshot. Ooh. Dead. So Patrick Pink runs upstairs to see Joe Meek. And when he gets there, Joe Meek takes the shotgun, puts it under his chin, and kills himself. Now, it's a tragic story. But it occurred on February 3rd, 1967. Yikes. Now, let's go back to uh, Phil. I was in L.A. working with uh, a production somewhere. It might have been Sunset Marquee on a Take a Walk on the Dark Side. But while I was there, uh, I was getting on my plane. I picked up L.A. Times, and the headlines was Phil Spector arrested for murder. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. And when I looked at the date of the murder and his arrest, it was February 3rd. Now, what would be the odds the two greatest record producers of that time period would both have their careers taken from them on a February 3rd? And then what you do, yeah, look at the date, September 7th. What that is, is Buddy Holly's birthday. Well, one of the interesting things was Tupac Shakur was shot on September 7th. I was going to ask you if you've if you got anything about the Tupac Shakur thing because there's so many strange things surrounding that person's death too. That Well, there is. Well, go ahead. I'll ask you some more stuff in a second. I'll let you finish. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, you guys you guys just jump in anytime because No, this is still fascinating. Is, yeah, it's it's all fascinating. Felt- um well, one of the things I did want to ask you, though, because we've had you on here for a while, and I've got I literally've got a slew of questions and if I don't start asking oh. stuff, I'm going to have you on here all night. Um I was going to ask you about some of the strange things surrounding Jimi Hendrix, and then I want to move in some, to some of the more modern stuff, because I've never really heard you. You've covered Jimi Hendrix in the book a little bit, but in all the interviews that I've heard you on, I've never really heard you talk about Jimi Hendrix. We've covered the basics thus far. We've covered you know, uh, the Led Zeppelin. We've covered uh, the Crosswoods legend and stuff. But Jimi Hendrix is one that you do write about, but I never really hear you talk about him, talk about him a whole lot. Rising from the depths of a state called Michigan, two inebriated dorks prepare their plan for intergalactic domination. Mixing their extensive knowledge of geek culture with their insatiable thirst for alcohol, these two man-children bring you a show like you've never heard before. They will tell you tales from faraway lands and have you questioning their taste in beer. But make no mistake, friend, for the best coverage of your favorite comics, films, and TV shows, there's no better source for you to get your fix. 
So listen up, strap in, and prepare yourself as Jake and Tom conquer the world. Hi, I'm Desmond. And I'm Shalom. And, and we're, we're the Not Historians. Just two guys with big mouths and little historical knowledge who take on pop history and everyday history things. It's so close to learning that you just might. Like the fact that Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. Well, he composed it. However, it was physically written by Thomas Matlick, clerk to the Secretary of the Second Continental Congress. Boom, did your mind just explode? Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, and other podcast catchers. You can find us online at Not Historians on Twitter and on Facebook. Now enjoy the rest of your show. So this is how this is going to work, because Gary went on for quite a period of time, and we weren't mm. about to tell him to shut up in any way, shape, no. or form. <laughs> um, what happens is I think we've got at least another hour or so worth of show after this. So what we're going to do is this is going to be part one, and we weren't planning on having a show next week anyways. I was just going to run a best of. But fortunately, um, Gary is such a vast pool of knowledge that we start stepping into new territory and i decided to cut the show off right here rather than end on a weird point and we're going to pick it back up next week where we go into all kinds of new things that he's never talked about before um i think in the last hour he revealed a couple of new things he's never talked about before too. Mm-hmm. but yep. it is obvious that he loved being on here he he's, he's he told us multiple times throughout the show even after the show how much how much he enjoyed being here and i'll say one thing man i he really, he really loved how much that we we had done our homework on this and how mm. first we were, which was a huge compliment for me. I was just right on, you know. But anyways, um, if you enjoyed this show, next week it gets even better because we pick up with talking about the death of Bowie. We go into a little bit about Prince. Um, we go all over in a bunch of different directions. We talk about the Kurt Cobain um, mm-hmm. conspiracy, the death conspiracy. Your information on Buddy Holly. Yes. I mean, like, good stuff. Yeah, so we, we do we do break new ground next episode, because some of the stuff that he's talked about on this show, he's talked about on other shows before. So the next show, I really wanted to make it a point to tighten the screws a little bit and try to push the envelope and see what more we could pull out of him and what directions we could go into of stuff that he hasn't covered. And boy, he delivers in spades. Yeah, um, see, now this is the this is one of the few times where where you, when you you know you hear that saying you may, be careful you don't want to ever meet your your idols because they may fall short. Yeah, this dude this dude d- definitely delivers all the way around. Well, that and he had a blast. I mean, we all yeah. had a blast talking about this, and you know, I again when the we genuine have, guy. When we have guests on here, I, I try to make it a point to not have uh, boring interviews for our guests. I really don't like the whole crossroads thing. I know he's talked about it a million times. But it's such an important legend to me, and people that have listened to the show for a while know that we've covered it and the stuff that I've covered before. And and Gary was kind of the birth for that for that knowledge seed in my head to go out and seek more about it. And mm. you know, I wanted to get that stuff out of the way, and I really want to tap into him. And he does a lot in the next show. So having said that, we're going to see all you guys next week. Um, I'll probably start off the next episode, and then we'll close it up, and we'll see everybody at the other side. And more than likely, if anybody is interested in going down to any crossroads themselves and summoning up the devil, Legba, be it whatever you want to consider it, and maybe having something done for yourself, uh, Lobos here is going to bring some instructions to the show when this is all over and done with <laughs> on how to possibly do that. So, um, again, you know, hopefully you guys enjoy this. We love doing it, and the next episode is going to be even cooler. 
Uh, as a note to our Patreons, I will be throwing up at some point here pretty quickly. I've got about another 10, maybe 15 minutes worth of bonus content where he does reveal even more stuff uh, after we stopped recording. He had him on, and he would have kept going again for another hour if we didn't cut it short. So, um, so you Patreon people out there, um, I've got some more stuff coming for you, and it's going to be in the Patreon feed pretty quick. But up until then, we'll see everybody next week and uh, talk to you again. Peace, folks. Bye.
Thank Eric Clapton, please. The vocal. <laughs> 